Dan mentioned the mission of God. Mentioned about living out that mission as we walk out the doors here every time we come to worship. And this year, we've dedicated our theme to the mission of God, discovering it. And we've been looking through the Old Testament, through the history of Israel, to see how God worked through Israel in order to accomplish what he purposed before time even began. One of the things we looked at, and one of the most important texts in all the Bible, is Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, what we call the Abrahamic Covenant. And in that covenant is a promise that if you've not highlighted, underlined, you need to do so. And there's a reason for that. Let me just explain what it is. I will bless those who bless you, God said to Abraham. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples, and all peoples, in your mind, if you would, mark through that and put your name. Because that's what God is saying. Les Chapman will be blessed through you. June Chapman will be blessed through you, Abraham. Blake Parker will be blessed through you. We could go around the entire worship center this morning. And we're all, if we are people who are disciples of Jesus Christ through faith and baptism, we have been blessed because of the promise God made to Abraham. And yet last week, as Lindsay mentioned, Lindsay, wonderful job uh, this morning leading our thoughts around communion. But last week we looked at how Israel failed miserably, though, in trying to be God's light to the nations. 722 B.C., the Assyrians come down, carried the northern kingdom into captivity. And a few years later, in 586, the Babylonians do the same toward Judah. And in fulfillment of what God had said through Moses to Israel, if you reject me and if you go after idols, I'm literally going to scatter you to the nations. And that's what he did. And you would almost want to say, God, your plan has failed. But Jeremiah reminds it hasn't, that God always keeps a remnant a remnant of Israel that he's going to continue to work through because his plan is not ultimately about a nation as much as it is about a person. And through that remnant, God's going to do something astonishing. In fact, if you read Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, boy, you want to throw up your hands and say, God, it's over. And yet God would whisper in your ear, oh, no, it's not. God would give you a glimpse, help you to hear an echo of verses, of passages, of statements, going all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And just ever so often, it's almost like a little light bulb comes on. Or maybe that first lightning bug of spring. You know, I always liked when the first lightning bugs begin to, to, to light up in the springtime. And, and you'll see one flash over here and you'll see one flash over there. And before long, they're flashing all over the place. And in so many ways, that's the way God was. Flashing little moments of light down through history. Saying, listen, my plan's still on track. And I'm going to still carry out my mission no matter what. I like to tell people, and, and I really do believe this with all of my heart, perhaps the greatest argument for the divine nature of the Bible is this unified prophetic promise of the coming Messiah. We call him Christ. 
That's not Jesus' last name. It's Jesus' title. It literally means the anointed one. But one of the things that I am always amazed at as I read through the Old Testament is that I see pieces of the puzzle. I mean, we're talking about a big puzzle. Thousands, tens of thousands of pieces. But occasionally there's another piece. And I know where it goes. And then there's another one I discover, and I think, wait a minute, that one goes with this one. And over time, you begin to literally create a picture of what God is pointing to. And if I could say anything to our young people this morning, if you want a reason for believing in the Bible, if you want a reason for believing that there is a God, if you want a reason for believing that Jesus is his son, spend some time looking at those ancient prophecies. Prophecies made 1,000, 1,500 years, even 2,000 years before he was even born. And yet, like lightning bugs in the spring, little glimpses of what God's doing in the world. We don't have time to look at all of them. I mean, there's just so many of them. But I would like to, this morning, just simply to walk us through some of those little lightning bug moments scattered throughout the Old Testament that tell us so much about who was coming. You see, by the time you get to Jesus' day, Jesus is traveling through Samaria. He stops at a well called Jacob's Well. There's a woman who comes to draw water. And in so many ways, that woman represents where Israel is. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. I mean, here's a woman who's first of all Samaritan, which means that she's partially Jewish and partially Gentile. When, when Israel was carried off into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 that we saw a few moments ago, the Assyrians moved Gentiles in. And what was left of the Israelites intermarried with the Gentiles, and that's where we got the Samaritans. They're Jewish, but... They're not Jewish. They're Israelite, but not 100%. And, and so here's a woman from, from that group of people who still believes in the God of Scripture, who not only believes in the God of Scripture, but knows that God is doing something. Now, her life is in shambles. Married five times, living with a man who's not even her husband now. She's coming out to the well to draw in the middle of the day because she's trying to avoid all the rest of the women in the village when all at once a Jewish rabbi strikes up a conversation with her. I'm a Jewish woman and you're talking to me and asking me for water? You remember the conversation. And as the discussion turns toward religion, she says something that is quite remarkable. Here's what she said. I know that Messiah and John tells us, that means Christos. I know that he is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. You see, those lightning bugs had lit up the sky so much that everyone knew what it was pointing to in the first century. The Christos, the Messiah, he's coming. And Jesus, after she says that, looks at her and says, I am he. The first time he announced himself publicly, and the next thing you know, crowds are pouring out of the little village to hear the one who had told this woman about everything that had happened in her life. When you turn to these prophecies in the Old Testament, and, and again, I, I just love going through them and, and looking at how they point. And of course, the prophecies vary. I mean, you have, for instance, some passages that the New Testament writers will look at and they'll say, okay, this may not be an exact prophecy, 
but it's using language that Jesus fulfills. And so they grab a phrase and they'll say, this is fulfilled further by Jesus himself. Sometimes you'll have stories that, that the prophets will, will predict that were going to happen in his day, in the prophet's day. And yet when you get to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit will look back and say, but there was a fuller meaning of that prophecy. It has a much fuller meaning that the Messiah is going to fulfill. And then sometimes you have prophecies that are simply about the Messiah. Peter would write how that the prophets oftentimes long to understand, what in the world am I writing about? Even angels were interested in knowing, what are they pointing to? And of course the answer was, to God's mission in the world. Jesus of Nazareth. When you begin to go through that list of, of incredible prophecies, we, I want to begin, first of all, with those that tell us who he is. I mean, who was this Messiah that was to come into the world? And going all the way back to Genesis 3, you have what's sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel. And in the Proto-Evangelium, you have God saying to the woman, to Eve, I'll put animosity, King James Version, enmity, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he'll crush your head, and you will crush his heel. Language that the writers of the New Testament pick up. I love Revelation chapter 12, where you have John's example, John's description of the incarnation of Jesus, and how that this dragon was waiting for Jesus to be born so that he could just literally eat him at the moment and destroy him. And God sweeps him away and he protects him. So many stories over in Matthew's gospel relate to that. And then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest, her being Israel here, the rest of her offspring, the rest of her seed. You see, the seed of the woman would be the one through whom God would work. You turn over to Romans 16:20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet in fulfillment of that ancient prophecy. And so who is this Messiah? In some strange way, the seed of woman. Maybe Isaiah 7, 14, and the virgin that will be with child. Maybe it has some saying about who she is and who the one born to her would be. Chapter 3, Paul would say there's another seed. Not the seed of the woman, this time it's the seed of Abraham. And he would talk about the fact that God made a promise to Abraham's seed. And he says it's not seeds, plural, but it's seeds, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. And so you begin to see, okay, it's the seed of woman, but it's also the seed of Abraham. Moses would say, let me tell you who else he may be. He's going to be from you Israelites. God's going to raise him up from your own people. And he's going to be a prophet very much like you. And notice what he says here is the end. You must listen to him. Fascinating text. I've always loved the fact that in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes the apostles up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter had just rebuked Jesus for claiming that he was going to go suffer, die, and be raised the third day. Lord, that will never happen to you. And almost, it appears as if, you know, Jesus just really wants to give it to Peter. So he takes Peter and James and John up on the mountain, and he's transfigured in front of them. And God appears in a cloud and says, this is my son whom I love. And then to make sure they got the message, said, listen to him. 
powerful language, all reflecting back to Deuteronomy 18, 15. Seed of woman. Seed of Abraham. Prophet like Moses. And then, of course, David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever, be established forever. And so you have the Davidic covenant. Again, the seed traveling down from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, eventually down to David himself. More and more specific, God gives. But it's just and right in the land. In his days, Judah would be saved. Israel. Not through the line of David. And Jesus would be the one who would fulfill it. So that's who he is. What about, why is he coming? And again, the prophecies just keep appearing. Isaiah, for instance. Isaiah is oftentimes called the fifth gospel. And it is the fifth gospel. I mean, if you start reading in Isaiah, it's just amazing how quickly you start seeing these lightning bugs appear. All pointing to Jesus. I mean, 2 and 23, he quotes from Isaiah 7, 14 about the virgin who's going to be with child. You turn to Isaiah 9, a passage that we focused on back December. I mean, when we were looking at the incarnation, there Isaiah says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And of course you have those beautiful names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and of course the greatness of his government. Boy, when we look at what's going on in the world, and realize that there is one sitting on the throne right now whose government is greater than every other government in the world, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing, upholding it with justice, righteousness. From that time in forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You know, that's why I tell people that I'm apolitical. Because that's the kingdom I'm a part of. That's the kingdom that makes Russia look like nothing. But at the same time, makes the United States look like nothing. You know, when people say, Les, do you believe in one nation under God? I do. And that nation is called the King Christ. That's the most important thing. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. I'm getting old enough now that I know my days are numbered. And I know that one day I'll face the grave. And when I face that grave, there's only going to be one thing that matters politically for Les Chapman. And that is, did I bow the knee to the one true king, the one Lord, the one Son of God, Jesus Christ? That's the only thing that's going to matter. And if you don't understand that, we end up, what we end up doing is we end up focusing on things that we shouldn't focus on. Now, that's not to say that governments are not important. Please don't misunderstand me. 13 is very clear that those who are serving in government, those who served you know, in militaries and police force, they're servants of God. They're diakonos of the Lord and for that I'm so grateful. But they can't bring salvation. Only Jesus can do that. 
A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He goes on to describe that spirit, but I can't help but think about when the Spirit of God came down in the form of a dove and lit upon him. A gift that in so many ways was prophetic of your gift and my gift when we were baptized. Again, I think one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the past is in Acts 2.38, we focus on the remission of sins and we don't realize that the more important gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because it's that gift. It's that power. I mean, uh, Lindsay this morning in his, in his devotional before the supper talked about the Spirit of God that lives in us, that makes us cry, Abba, Father, that one day will raise our mortal bodies from the dead. It's that Spirit that first was given to Jesus and now is given to all those who become children of God through him. And then I love this passage. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? This is one of the servant songs one of several little songs scattered in the 40s and 50 chapters of Isaiah that all point to Jesus. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to, rest, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel that I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. You see, that little lightning bug also blinked for us. And not just a light for the Gentiles, but that we might know the salvation that first came to the Jews and then came to us. Isaiah 61, a passage that is so powerful, describing the ministry of Jesus, so much so that when Jesus goes down to Nazareth, he takes this very scroll of Isaiah, turns to that very passage and says, Today! And I wish I had time to talk about Isaiah 53. One of the most amazing descriptions of what Jesus did at Calvary for you and for me. I mean, it describes his giving of his life, his shedding of his blood, his innocence before God. Describes his very resurrection, his burial with the rich, his, his death with the wicked, and his salvation of all those who will believe in him. Read Psalm 22. A song of David. A song that Jesus cried out on the cross. A lot of times we miss that. We don't realize that when he's hanging on the cross, right before he dies, to make sure that we finally get it, he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not a cry of desperation, but the first line of a song. Trying to say, if you want to understand what's happening, go back and read the song that my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather David wrote so long ago. It describes the crucifixion in ways that are just absolutely mind-boggling. You can read that and still believe that the Bible's not inspired. You've got some abilities I don't have. And then finally, what is he doing now? And that's why this lesson is so important. You see, when, when I obeyed the gospel. I kind of obeyed the gospel with the idea that Jesus had finished his work. You know, Jesus came, died on the cross for our sins, and then went back to heaven. And boy, what a truncated view of the work of the Messiah that was. You see, one of our greatest mistakes was we didn't focus on the coronation of Jesus. 
Yes, Jesus was crowned king when they put that crown of thorns on his head. In one sense, that's true. But in another sense, he was crowned king at a much more important point, a point that we so oftentimes miss. You see, Daniel, long, long time ago, he kind of let a lightning bug flash for you. And I'll tell you what, I'll let its light shine for a little bit brighter than normal. And so Daniel writes, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Became Jesus' favorite description of himself, the son of man. One like the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Not coming this way, coming into the presence of God. In other words, ascending from the earth. And notice what he says. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He's led into his presence. Are you kidding me? It was a procession of the Prince of Peace becoming the king of the universe. You see, he comes to the Ancient of Days and bes- And there, a crown was placed on his head as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And that's where he reigns right now. This one, and one out of Psalm, one of David's Psalms. When Jesus looked at them, he said, You want them get me to give you a glimpse of what I'm going to do? Then become aware of these two. Jesus is standing before the high priest. They've asked him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus' response is, you've said so. And then look at what he says. But I say to all of you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man. Important passage of all the Old Testament as far as the New Testament is concerned. Psalm 110 verse 1. You'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One of the Ancient of Days of God himself. And notice, coming on the clouds of heaven, grabbing Daniel 7, verse 14, and then uniting it with Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, this is David speaking. This is the passage Jesus said to the Pharisees. How can David's son call, be called by David himself, his Lord? How is that even possible? And, of course, the answer is because he's the son of God. But Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What is Jesus doing right now? He's taking care of every enemy of God, one by one. Now, you may be thinking, wow, he's taking his time, isn't he? Yeah, they thought the same thing. You see, from the time Abraham received his promise, it'd be over 2,000 years before that promise would be fulfilled in Jesus. And so we look and we say, it's been 2,000 years. Really? You think that's the amount of time? Peter would say, 1,000 years is but a day to the Lord. One by one, Satan's being defeated. And what we need to realize is, no matter what's happening in Europe, Jesus is still on the throne. No matter what's happening in Washington, Jesus is still on the throne.
lets that mission be known to everybody else. What I love most about this passage is not just verse 1. Verse 1 to me is powerful. But what most people don't realize is that there is another verse, four verses down or three verses down, called verse 4. It's only referred to one time in the New Testament or in one book of the New Testament. That's the book of Hebrews. But in the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer says, Can I tell you another fact that is, a, that is so pertinent to who we are? And that fact is this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Jesus, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He goes back and he grabs a character out of the book of Genesis who is even greater than Abraham himself, who blessed Abraham. And he said, that's the order of priesthood, Jesus, you have. And that's why Jesus, not being a descendant of Aaron, not being a member of, of the Levitical tribe, that's why Jesus could go into the Holy of Holies. And there for my sins. And for yours. And that's why I have hope today. He's poured out his blood for all people's sin. But only those who accept him. Their faith in him. Had access to it. Why not take advantage of that right now? Once you come, it's together we stand and sing.